Hello, and welcome to the Campaign Podcast, Campaign Magazine's weekly conversation about everything happening in advertising, marketing, and media. I'm Brittany Kiefer, the Creativity and Culture Editor. And I'm Kate McGee, the Associate Editor. Later in this episode, you can listen to an excerpt from one of our Media 360 sessions from this week with Vanessa Kingori, the Publishing Director of British Vogue. But first, Kate, last week you were on and we talked about your feature on the industry's long hours culture, and it got a lot of readership. So I just wanted to hear what kind of reactions are you getting to the piece? I've been really cheered by the reaction to the piece because I cared quite deeply about it. I've had a lot of um, people talking to me about it on social media, and there's been quite a lot of interesting discussions on LinkedIn from people in other industries as well, sort of talking about what it's like in their industries and some of the common themes that are there. Um, Privately, I've had people contact me as well. I've had some senior managers getting in touch saying that they were kind of quite disturbed by what was written in the piece um, and that they perhaps weren't really conscious sometimes of the um, you know what might be happening to kind of junior staff or you know mid mid level staff if timings slip on pitches or whatever and that, that they were kind of they wanted to do better and they were kind of you know really thinking about how they can how they can make changes so that's mm. really that's really cheering um, and I also had quite a lot of personal response from sort of mid management and sort of more junior ch- um, staff as well saying thanks for bringing it up as a topic and you know finally someone's sort of saying enough's enough and that and that it's gone down really well among their, all their peers and stuff and it's something that they all think about so I think it, it in short it's really touched a nerve and I think that's I'm really pleased by that response and I think now the question is what we do to kind of take that forward I don't want that piece to just disappear into the ether right you know I want that to be the start of a conversation about how we can actually actively make a change and so I'm looking at how we can do that. I mean, I think one of the conversations we need to have is with clients, and I'm going to try and set one of those up. Any, if anybody's listening has got any kind of, you know, great ideas about how we can change that or want to work with me on it, then I'd be very really happy to hear from them. Yeah, I actually spoke to a creative leader this week who was telling me that your piece really stayed with him, and he was thinking about it a lot at the end of last week when they were doing a pitch and just becoming really aware of kind of that knock-on effect of how the pitch is run, like what everyone is doing, you know, why one small decision might affect a person and um, make them stay up late to work on something and just being really conscious of like how that process is running. And one thing he said to me was that just we need to have, try to have more fun in this pitch process and um, I think that a lot of times agencies do it differently, but the the fun and camaraderie of their process, whether it's pitching or creating work, is being lost, especially in the a more remote environment. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when I talk to people, a lot of people said that actually when they were pitching on stuff, even if it was really difficult and long hours, if there was a lot of yeah camaraderie and you felt like you were part of a team and you were doing something fun and there was a sort of sense of humor and there was sort of fun being had it wasn't quite as bad but it was and you know particularly if you're winning I guess that also helps but um yeah it was when it started to just become relentless and there was a negative environment and it just felt like everything you know just kind of piling down on you I think that was um that was something that people saying then became not not fun so I definitely think fun is a good thing but I also don't think that fun should replace you know not doing the long hours so it's it's not you know, it's not good enough just to be doing long hours and not. The solution is not order pizza. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, you know, but I, I, mean, I do have a lot of sympathy. I think these are really difficult issues. Um, but it's, I just think it's really important. We need to get it right. 
I also got um, uh, an interesting message from Cheryl Cap- Cavalry, who's the chief exec of Eve Sleep. Um, and as a client, she said, the level of perfectionist client servicing isn't needed. Hours and hours of deck tweaking, not necessary. Get your thinking and work right, then talk the rest. Don't kill people on the polishing. No client is making choices like that. And I thought that was an interesting, a really interesting comment that actually make sure that you're focusing on the things that matter and, you know, not all the bits around the side. It doesn't have to be perfect. Well, that's really good. I hope that, like you said, you know, we can keep the conversation going and um, it'd be interesting just to see if anything changes over the next year or so. Um, But it definitely feels like the industry is kind of coming back to life in a way, like so much new work has just come out this week. It's almost as if they timed that for something that happened this week. (laughs) Um, So yeah, like lockdown restrictions are easing, things are opening back up. And so much new work has come out that we just wanted to take some time to give an overview of some of that work. And we won't put a dent in all the new campaigns that have been out this week, but we'll share some of our personal favorites and highlights so far. So first, uh, in line with the pubs reopening indoors, Guinness released a campaign um, to mark this moment. And it's all about the longing that comes from missing that pint in the pub. And that idea that when you miss something so much, you start to see it everywhere. So this ad was created by Jack Watts and James Cambridge at AMV BBDO. And it was directed by Chris Ballman through Outsider. Let's take a quick listen of that. Maybe I didn't treat you Quite as good as I should have Maybe I didn't love you Quite as often as I could have So the soundtrack is that classic song, Always On My Mind. And throughout the ad, you can see these visual motif of the Guinness pint, which is really distinctive. And it's almost as if this viewer is seeing the pint everywhere they look from a cat sitting on a black rain barrel to socks hanging on a line, the foam of a load of laundry. Uh, Kate, you watched the ad. What did, what did you think of this? I'm a massive fan of Guinness ads in general. And I think AMV has done some sterling work over the years on it. Um, and I, this is no exception. I think this is a great ad. I think strategically it's, it's great. I mean, they're obviously lucky to have a, a strap line of good things come to those who wait. I mean, it couldn't be more true um, right now, particularly. And I think it's a really strong creative idea. I mean, it's just a really smart, clever way of showing Guinness, you know, in in all the kind of in all the different bits, walks of life with the kind of black and the white bit. And I think that's just really clever and it just gets you thinking differently. And obviously it's beautifully shot. I like the music. I think Jack Savaretti's got a lovely voice um, and it kind of obviously a great, uh, great song choice. My one pernickety, pernickety point <laughs> is that go on <laughs> in order to have uh you know fitted it into the 30 seconds or 40 seconds whatever the, the ad is they've had to truncate the song and they've had to they've had to remove beats from the bars and i i just it's i find it so distracting um that <laughs> I, I i it's it bothers me quite deeply i mean i'm i'm hearing the baseline of the original in my head when i'm listening to the song and it's been I didn't even pick up on that you're very observant yeah I, I have musical background so um this may be why it bothers me more but it's I, I find it <laughs> deeply upsetting how it makes sense <laughs> <laughs> well I've been 
really immersed in the world of Guinness this week because I've been editing this piece by Walter Campbell, the creative director who made the Guinness Surfers ad and some of the other really classic work that the brand did earlier on when AMV won it. Um, And he wrote this piece for us that's out in the June issue about how they came up with that line, good things come to those who wait. Um, and the, some of the ads that followed it. And it was really interesting to hear his story about, um, he himself didn't even drink. He was a teetotaler and he, um, he really wanted to work on the Guinness brief when they, when they were doing the pitch, because he said he would observe his friends drinking a pint of Guinness in the pub. And he said, I felt very clearly that the poor was a treasured part of the Guinness experience. I'd seen mates who are devoted Guinness drinkers look at the settling glass with a distinct sense of longing, wanting the result of the weight and yet also wanting the weight at the same time. So I just was thinking of that line because it's I think it's never been more true than now as people are going back indoors at the pubs. <laughs> I think that's great. I mean, it's such a it's just a clever classic clever advertising strategy right you know make a virtue of the thing that is actually an irritant you know if you're standing I, I think it's probably an irritant you're standing at the pub you're buying a big round and you want your guinness and you want it quickly you don't want to be standing in a you know up there you want to be back with your friends having fun but it's worked brilliantly and then um, you know we'll credit to them yeah really good so on to uh something actually less light-hearted so this week engine released two ads that are separately so gut-wrenching, emotional, and powerful. Uh, I was really taken aback by both of them. So the first one I wrote about was this campaign from the Alzheimer's Society. It's Dementia Awareness Week, but the charity in this film is putting the focus on the plight of carers. So this film follows the journey of one woman whose husband has dementia. And in the background, you hear these really upsetting phone calls she's making where she's just trying to get help for what she's going through with her husband. Hello? I can't... Don't you have the notes of my husband's dementia already? Okay. So can I speak to you about getting some respite care? It, it would only be a few hours. I know this is last minute. But I'm sure I could sort some cover. It's just my husband's carer is cancelled again. You also, at the same time, see these scenes of her with her husband and trying to look after him and just carry on with her daily life. And then at the end, you hear just this heartbreaking voice message she receives. This is a message for Anna. I'm afraid your application for care funding hasn't been successful. If you'd like to discuss this your heart just kind of drops when you hear that and you've seen what uh, what she's gone through. Um, so this campaign is really pushing the UK government to fix the broken social care system and it asks people who watch the ad to sign this petition calling on the government to do that. Um, it was created by Chris DeRosa and Hugo Isaacs and directed by Novemba through Academy. Um, a really good team at Engine there that... Uh, are ones to watch but Kate I I know you said you struggled to kind of even get through the film because it was so emotional (laughs) do you have any thoughts on it 
Uh, yeah, I, I'm sorry. I'm just not up for sad things at the moment right now. I think there's been enough going on. Um, but it's obviously, yeah, very well done. Uh, it's a really important issue. Um, they've, you know, they've come up with a great, powerful film that I think will really rouse people to really think about that and, and you know, put pressure where it's needed and you know, try and help people that are going through this really awful, awful thing. Mm. I think it's quite interesting that they, I mean, it's not totally innovative, but to put the focus on carers. So often when we talk about dementia or some of these other um, life-changing illnesses, the focus is on the people who have that condition and who are going through it themselves. And I think carers are people who often just get overlooked or kind of hidden in these discussions. So I thought it was so powerful that they um, they told that woman's story and I hope a lot of good comes from it. I think that's definitely true. And I think over the pandemic, we've seen, you know, obviously care workers and, you know, partly personal carers, you know, really important, difficult job that is very undervalued. And I think it's quite interestingly timed, you know, as you're saying, with lockdown easing and people being able to go back to the pub again, and there's sort of a sense of positivity and optimism. And it's important to make sure that these people that, um, you know, the heroes are not forgotten as everybody moves on with their lives. Yeah, absolutely. So another campaign that Engine released this week, kind of, uh, again, just totally blew me away, was this campaign for the Cayenne Prince Foundation. And in case you don't know, this is a charity set up by Mark Prince, who is the father of Cayenne Prince. And the charity is all about fighting knife crime and youth violence. Now, Cayenne was a young football prodigy who was very tragically stabbed and killed outside his school in London when he was only 15 years old. And this is now the 15th anniversary of his death. So for this campaign, Engine helped bring Cayenne back to life virtually. So I know that sounds kind of confusing. So what they did was they worked with scientists specializing in human aging and VFX artists from Framestore who have worked on films like The Avengers. And they tried to create this visual likeness of what he would look like at age 30 and imagine what his future would have been. So he was like I said, a football prodigy who was really talented um, at the sport and it imagines him as this football star. And they actually created a character of Cayenne that will be in FIFA games that people can actually like play with in this game. And they've just visualized him at, at age 30. And I just thought it was so powerful um, to kind of get this vision of what this boy could have grown into. There's two stories I want to tell you about my son, Kayan. The first one is about how he lost his life to a young person carrying a knife. But I want to tell you the other story, the more powerful one, about the man he was destined to become. Everyone used to talk about Kayan, how much of a wonderful talent he was. And he was always destined to play at the top. Kate, what did you think of the film? Oh, it's, I thought it was brilliant. Really, really brilliant. Um, just obviously, it's a really um, tragic story, and it's you know, obviously a really important cause. So that you know that almost goes without saying. But I think that the way, the, just the idea to actually bring him back to life in this way, and to you know get involved with gaming, which is obviously a, you know a big, huge growth area, and the, the kind of opportunities that digitally it, it affords you to kind of 
bring people back to life and put them in and to raise awareness for that I, I just think it's just brilliant I mean brilliant yeah <laughs> so I'm not being particularly <laughs> articulate about it but it's just it, I, I found it really the film itself was just so powerful uh, it's, a, it's a great idea and um yeah well done engine I was thinking about how so many different organizations have tried to do campaigns tackling this problem of knife crime. And of course, the first one, unfortunately, that comes to mind, which is notorious, is the campaign from the Home Office in 2018. Uh, do you remember this, Kate? It was the they put messages on the insides of chicken boxes encouraging young people to, you know, not carry weapons and stuff. And it was very widely criticized for kind of perpetuating these stereotypes and singling out um, young black kids. And it was just, uh, did not go down well, to say the least. Um, and then more recently, there was a campaign from the Met Police, also about knife crime, and it, it took it from the perspective of mothers. So you would um, this idea of like the worst phone call a mother could get. And they were, they put the spotlight on these real mothers who got the call that their child had, um, been stabbed. And that was very emotional as well. But I, again, I thought like, will this be effective in targeting youth? I wonder. Um, but I just think, you know, I, I hope it is effective, but this campaign was so unique in that it created this, character this boy who it was so special and loved by his friends who still remember him well and you know took it to the world of fifa and sport and um i just thought it's a really good take on the issue and i hope it works uh, yeah i think make a really good point actually about the effectiveness because i think I, I don't think anybody thinks that knife crime is a good thing so you don't really need an ad showing you how awful it is but um putting putting a character like that in a, a game that lots of young people are playing if that's your target audience so when they're actually there they're engaging they're in you know when as part of their entertainment it's part of the fabric of their life it's not um it's it just so i think it was just so seamlessly fit into their life uh, that's why i just think it's a really really clever idea and hopefully it will be effective like you said well done engine you've had quite the week um <laughs> <laughs> now next time yeah, your challenge is to make us laugh next time <laughs> yeah so uh i also want to give a quick nod to this campaign from nike so they partnered with channel four this is the first time they've done this to create a 22 minute long documentary about one young man in london who also going back to the theme of caring he is a carer to his mother and growing up he's struggled with self-doubt and this film kind of follows his journey as he takes on this challenge to build his self-confidence and he gets mentored by all these top athletes um, the film is directed by Dan Emerson through some such. The soundtrack has a lot of up-and-coming UK music stars like Little Sims. Um, it was created by Wyan Kennedy London and Nike Creative Studio. My name's Touche. From about 10 or 11, I've been a young carer for my mom. I don't remember kind of a day when I was suddenly deemed a carer. It's not a very conventional way to grow up. And I think at that time, Laura realized how much it was affecting me. I haven't seen the full film yet, but I think if any brand is going to do, you know, a branded documentary, which kind of became trendy in recent years, it will be Nike. And I'm sure it will be very good. What did you think of it, Kate? Yeah, I completely agree. Obviously, we've talked about Nike before. Nike. Nike? Nike? 
Always I'm forget. sorry. I say Nike. I'm American. <laughs> Nike. You say Nike. I say Nike. Um, I don't know what the right answer is there. So you can write in, tell us. Um, I think that, um, you know, yeah, as you say, they've got such great pedigree. They produce great ads. Why didn't Kennedy, you know, brilliantly creative. So, um, yes, they should hopefully do well. I, I think, yeah, these, these branded documentaries, I think we've always been quite skeptical about on the team. It feels very indulgent. And, you know, is anyone actually going to sit there and choose to watch that over something on Netflix? which is you know, essentially who you're competing against if you start producing these sort of longer form video content. But that said, I watched this trailer and um, I'm actually really intrigued. <laughs> I want to watch it. Yeah. So it, it's got me hooked. Yeah, it sounds like a really interesting concept. So, um, I, you know, yeah, I, I am going to watch to see whether he does the dive or not. Yeah, probably what gives it more weight is that they did partner with Channel 4 and it's going to be running on all four um, as its own standalone piece of content. But also I think that Nike is really good at kind of telling stories about local communities. So the, I mean, the classic example is the Nothing Beats a Londoner ad from a few years ago. They really worked with young people and communities in London to capture the spirit of the city. And I think that ad could have not been about any other place than London. And when I was watching this trailer for the documentary, you know, I noticed these scenes like around Northwest London and um, the characters in it. And I thought like, you know, it just felt very authentic. And I think it, it could actually be a good watch. So we'll see. So last but not least, we're going to talk about a new ad from Diet Coke. This is the first work for the brand by Droga5 London. Uh, let's listen to a clip. So what they've done here is they've enlisted Grammy award-winning artist Thundercat to remix the classic Diet Coke jingle just for the taste of it. So to give you a bit of brand history, this line and jingle actually introduced the Diet Coke brand when it launched in 1982. And for those who remember, I don't, I was very young. Rubbing it in. <laughs> Sorry, that was a rub in for you, Kate, <laughs> or whoever. <laughs> careful, careful. <laughs> uh, I know. The jingle dominated Diet Coke's advertising in the 80s, and then it's been revived like several times since. There have been music artists, you know, including Elton John, who've done their own takes on it. And this cover from Thundercat is kind of slowed down from the peppier high energy versions of years past and it's very much in thundercat style it's very laid back and easygoing but it kind of captures that just because spirit of the campaign um so you see all these uh characters in these kind of silly fun moments throughout the film where they're just letting loose and being their authentic selves. So you see a woman kind of whip off her bra in the back of a taxi at the end of a long day, or this businessman like riding a mechanical animal, this woman going down to the corner shop in just her pajamas. I think it's a really fun film. It's directed by Autumn DeWild, who's an excellent director. She most recently did the 2020 remake of Emma, the Jane Austen novel, which is a great film. Um, I just think, you know, Diet Coke there and Coke in general, their advertising has kind of struggled in recent years. And I think it hasn't been as strong as it was throughout the brand's history. But to 
to me, this is kind of what a Diet Coke ad should be. It's really fun. It's joyful. Um, it has some attitude to it. Yeah, I agree. I think why not have a bit of fun with a brand like that? I must admit, I'm not sure if I should admit this, but when I first read your um, your story, I saw Thundercat, and this is how uncool I am. <laughs> I thought I, I read Thundercats, <laughs> and so I watched the I watched it, and I was I got to the end, and I was like, but where's the Thundercats? And I had to go back and read. So um, yeah, yeah, clearly got that all wrong. <laughs> sorry, sorry for the confusion. <laughs> But I, I think it's cool. I think the track is really good and it kind of almost feels a bit trippy and you kind of watch it and you feel, you can see they're trying to make you feel something as if you would feel if you were drinking the can, the kind of Coke and going to take, transporting yeah. you to a different sort of place. So uh, yeah, yeah, I think it's, um, it's interesting. I thought they did a great job with it. And it's kind of a good one to end on. Uh, for those of you listening, take a listen to the ad and try to not get that track stuck in your head. It's nearly impossible. <laughs> it's definitely um, in mine right now. It has been all afternoon. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't stop thinking about it. Um, well, that's it for this week. There's so much new work on our website, campaignlive.co.uk. So take a look whenever you get a chance. Uh, thank you for joining me, Kate. You're welcome. We're now going to move on to an excerpt from Gideon's conversation with Vanessa Kingori. Welcome to this session called Spotlight on British Vogue, how the British Fashion Bible tackled the challenges of creating during lockdown. But I think there's going to be so much more we can talk about with Vanessa Kingori, who is the Publishing Director of British Vogue. Welcome, Vanessa. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's brilliant to have you. And just uh, by way of background, uh, Vanessa has been the Publishing Director since 2017. She joined Condé Nast in 2009 and was at GQ. And prior to that, she was at the Esquire and the Evening Standard. So she's had a really interesting career on a number of different brilliant brands uh, but Vogue is why we're here and um, I've got to start by asking you Billie Eilish has just been on the cover of the latest issue yes. and it, from what I can tell uh, it's been a huge thing on Instagram and on social media so just uh, Billie Eilish tell us a bit about that. Oh, it's been absolutely we knew that Billie would be huge she reached she wanted to reveal her sort of new look and to collaborate with us on this kind of new look which is radically different to her former look and I think it's really cool that she chose she could have just released it on Instagram but she chose British Vogue because she felt that we were kind of at the zeitgeist of some of these conversations. Um, There have been some brilliant covers and just I'm a magazine editor so I obviously care about this too but it's interesting how you frame it in a digital um, reference point which I totally get so tell us a little bit you know covers really matter Yes. And tell us about where you see that relationship uh, as the publisher between the, 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 if you like, the print concept, but actually the digital sharing yeah. and everything. This is sort of super important, I think. The, the, when um, I started at Vogue, and certainly for most of my time in the magazine sort of world and history, there's always been this siloing of digital and print and um my feeling is that the two things go to, together. Um, there is no better marketing platform for our print magazine than our own digital platforms. So we get to control 
the messaging, the awareness by teasing out images, by making sure. I mean, there's a huge amount of thought that goes behind the strategy for the digital release of those covers. And um, similarly, print, you know, there's this idea that digital, of course, is the future and so on and so forth. But for us, our digital numbers and our digital growth is really bolstered by really big print cultural moments. The two are really symbiotic and um, that they can't exist in silos for our brand to, to flourish. So um, the digital release strategy of the print is probably the most important part of our months at Vogue. And um, out of interest, uh, when you're thinking about the cover, mm. how these myths about Vogue covers, they, uh, they can take months and months of, of gestation. Um, how difficult has it been to do these covers in the last year? Because I felt like, particularly around Black Lives Matter, you move fast. There was the Activism Now cover. Mm. Um, there was also um, the stuff about the sort of heroes of uh, the first lockdown. And some, yeah. uh, so uh, that must have been logistically challenging. And maybe, I don't know, if the editor-in-chief says, I want this, who does the... You know, I, I let's make it happen. Maybe it's <laughs> um, that's really Edward's domain. I mean, I I have some input into covers, of course, but it has been interesting the last year because the the level of creativity has had to really kind of go up, and the sort of ingenuity between making things happen. So, quite quickly, there was a realization at Vogue that we the same types of the covers we had lined up once lockdown happened, didn't really make sense. So we pushed a lot of cover, those covers forward. We had a moment where we had um, a huge kind of supermodel lined up for an issue and it just didn't make sense anymore. And that's when we put Dame Judi Dench on the cover um, who then became the um, most senior uh, cover star in British Vogue history. And it just made sense because it was at that time where we were talking a lot about the impact of COVID and the pandemic on isolation for the elderly and, and so on and so forth. So it made sense to have a legend and someone who felt relevant. Um, and so we had to move fast on that. We did the reset covers, which were these 14 different covers by iconic British artists which was just incredible. I mean, to do 14 covers for one issue with all with, you know, what artists are like, you know, they working with one is um, rewarding, but challenging. Um, but yeah, Edward has a really strong vision. For the most part, he actually does a lot of the initiate. He picks up the phone himself most often, but then he works with a really great team and everyone pitches in, everyone wants once we all kind of buy into the vision, he mobilizes everyone to sort of do their bit and make it happen. So some covers are months, up to a year, a couple of years in the making. Some covers are like the September issue, elements of that happened sort of weeks before deadline. So when you and Edward were both appointed, it was, uh, I think, simultaneous mm-hmm. and um uh, it feels like, for many reasons, editorially and perhaps commercially, you've changed a lot since that point. And I wondered if you could sort of say a little bit about what you're, you know, I guess what you're proud of, but also mm. what the strategy was, because you, you obviously believed and maybe you were tasked with making change. Yes. 
Well, see, Edward was just ahead of me and I was, I can't remember, like just a little bit after. But it was kind of really cool when I think back on it because I was given free free reign, not totally free reign, but kind of what do you think is needed? How do you want to do that? Go ahead, you know. And for me, the the business side of things, there were a few key drivers that really were driving the change that we're at now. One was, of course, digital. So when I inherited the team, when I look at the advertising team specifically, there was one person who did all of the digital um, partnerships and, and so on. And that just was a key, you know, restructure moment. The other big thing um, was around branded content. I could see that there was a need for us to build more into the model, which was not just about straight advertising. The business structure before was essentially on display ads advertising. That, that, that's the revenue in print. And what I wanted to do was diversify the mix and the revenue um, pillars. And so branded content, which actually led to a big cultural change, um, because if you are going to create content for brands that connects with communities and the wider audience, you have to have a team that understand and know that audience really well and those different communities so that drove a lot of the need for diversity as well um and I think those are those are kind of the main thing the other big thing was about non-endemic business so when I inherited the sort of Vogue business the advertising model was very much around fashion which seems of course very obvious and and does very well for us but I was looking at the audience and women um, are making the key decisions on car buying. They're buying watches. They're, you know, um, making huge decisions on the home. They have financial portfolios and our business didn't reflect that in terms of the, the partners that we worked with. So a lot of my work was about saying, okay, how are we going to create um, a business structure where we can liaise with big financial players, big tech players, car brands, as well as the fashion community. So it was it was a big transformation and a challenging one at times. Uh, is your advertising team, um, um, do you now keep print and digital separate or are they together? Yeah. Fine. Yeah. For me, this whole thing of silos just doesn't work. You know, I think we've spoken about this before, but I had to physically take walls down in my, you know, in my offices. So when I inherited the team, literally everyone sat in their groups in silos. So you had the branded content team. You had this one poor digital girl who was like out, you know, in Siberia. And then you had, you know, the guys facilitating that and then on a different floor you have PR and marketing and different so for me I just sort of said all of these walls mean you have no idea how hard or what the other parts of the teams are doing how you might be able to leverage what they're doing how you might be able to connect with that and how you learn so suddenly digital became much less scary when you could hear um, the person who was doing that you know selling those deals um, every day and become familiar with the language so my the key part of my strategy is that from a 
commercial ad sales perspective, everyone has to do everything. You have to have full platform because if you're going to have a conversation with, you know, I don't know, Gucci or something, they, they, they're talking to you about how you reach an audience. They're not talking to you about kind of, oh, can someone else do the digital bit? It's like, where is the audience? You tell me and, and you give me the idea and they want to have one conversation. Yeah, it makes obvious sense. Um, right from the start of Edward's editorship, uh, with the choice of covers and features, uh, there was a real sense that um, there was some talent that had, um, for whatever reasons, not had that prominence and that platform, mm. which uh, he has given um, and and the wider Vogue team. So campaign itself, we did a a diversity issue in February 2020, which you were part of and on the cover, which was great. Um, but May 2020 was a very dramatic moment. And we are at, uh, pretty much at the anniversary of the killing of George Floyd. And if you don't mind my asking this, uh, how how did all of that affect you? And perhaps uh, you obviously spoke a lot to Edward. I don't know if, it, if you, you might have each had very different feelings, but I just wondered how it affected you. And, you know, it did feel like Vogue was well ahead in terms of thinking about the importance of this. And mm. yet this had suddenly gone global. Yeah, gosh, it's so strange to be at a year anniversary because it's a seminal historic moment. But what's so interesting is for me personally, when I started to see the news of George Floyd's killing, I um, sort of, it, it sounds awful to say, but as, you know, a black woman, I'm so tuned into this that I was sort of saying, I remember saying to my partner, gosh, another one. What struck me was that the world reacted to this killing more than they had the others. And I think that's a lot to do with the pandemic and the might, the fact that everyone was still, most people were at home, and then suddenly being asked to talk about it, to reflect on it, to consult, lots of brands asked me for input and was kind of emotionally really, really heavy, but also, but for Edward and I and the rest of our team and for most people of colour I know, it was a moment filled with opportunity because what we have been saying for most of our careers is that there is this disparity. There is a difference in how we are perceived and treated and not just black people, but people of color in, in, in different ways and anyone of difference. So suddenly there's a moment where everybody else is getting up to speed with that in that how are we allowing for one life to be so devalued? And it's because we can't see that life. We can't see it reflected anywhere. And so we haven't been able to engage with their triumphs and their challenges. So it was a really important moment in terms of, um, I think, brands that we work with really accelerating their conversations in that space. I was nervous it would be a sort of trend moment. Um, but it, I think there's still there's still good work going on. Good. And if um, you are thinking about your own company and your own brand, mm. um, are there anything things that you've done? Maybe you were doing them already, but I'm sure they're, they're new things you're always thinking about, um, which other companies 
could learn from? I think that there's a continuation and acceleration of stuff we were doing already. But to some specifics, if people are wondering what to do is I definitely think um, it's not about the content you put out. So a lot of people think that because representation matters and it does, it really does matter. But seeing uh, people who are who look like you and maybe different to the person who created the content is really important. But actually, that's not the starting place. The place is to start with your staff, who you hire, who you collaborate with, so that you can authentically in your ad campaign or on your cover, whatever it is, showcase um, people of difference correctly and authentically and with love. So don't start with the output, start behind the scenes. I think the other thing is there was a lot of talk about hiring, the challenges around hiring, that um, perhaps it's very hard to hire people of difference because they don't tend to come forward to organisations they don't know already hire, you know, they don't want to be the first. And organisations have to work harder. So since we last spoke um, as part of Forces for Change, I've launched a scholarship because I just realised that a lot of the times when I was advertising for roles, um, I would have to go to, I couldn't just rely on the advert, right? So I would have to go to my own network and say, can you just help me with these candidates? Get We need some other people in the mix. Um, and so what I realised is the funnel is really important. If a lot of those, a lot of people aren't coming into our industry, So we've launched a scholarship to try and help people from different backgrounds come into marketing and into the media landscape. I think just talking openly, that's probably the biggest thing that I've done differently. Mm. I have to admit that um, a lot of times when it comes to race, I have been someone who doesn't, uh, until recently, I would say in the last two or three years, um, talk on a big platform about it because it makes people uncomfortable and because there is um a lack of understanding and that we've been sort of I guess um socialized to believe that talking about race is somehow playing the race card um rather than actually helping people understand something that if they haven't lived the only way they can understand is through you know collaborative conversation so I think I have even more so push myself to be really honest with the people around me, with my teams, if they care to know about um, what my personal experiences are and to really try and create a safe space for people to not always agree with me. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening to the campaign podcast. Thank you to Vanessa Kingori for joining us at Media360 and to Kate McGee for helping me talk about this week's ads. This episode was edited by Lindsay Riley, and you can read more about the stories we talked about at Campaign Magazine, campaignlive.co.uk. If you're a first-time listener, please subscribe and leave a review. Goodbye, and hope you can join us again next week.